Uh, my opening words um, come from a, best, a recent bestseller by William Parker and Elaine St. John called uh, Prayer Can Change Your Life. The, one of the pioneers of psychology, Dr. Carl Jung, wrote, the human has only to realize that he is shut up inside his mind and cannot step beyond it, even in insanity, and that the appearance of his world and of his gods very much depends on his own mental condition. Jesus said it simply, the kingdom of God is within you. What about the kingdom of hell? William James, the renowned American psychologist and philosopher, answered, the hell of which theology tells is like the hell we make ourselves in this world by habitually fashioning our characters in the wrong way. If both kingdoms are within us, in our mind or consciousness, then may we not choose to unlock either, to dwell in chaos, confusion, and suffering, or in heaven, harmony, and well-being? Hello again. Uh, today is, the, uh, of course, the first Sunday of our new year, and um, the new year is a time that's uh, very special to me. Um, I should say I make it a time that's very special to me, and um, so I like to spend this first Sunday uh, discussing this uh, new year time. Um, my experience of the seasons are pretty visceral. I mean, I find that uh, my mood and almost my purpose, uh, certainly my attention, shifts with the season. Um, spring truly brings on in me spring fever and an urge to clean my closets and my desk, and certainly uh, a desire to get ready for summer. And similarly, summer and fall have their season. Well, this uh, winter is one in which uh, time is a time when I like to uh, look back at the pattern of my life, particularly the pattern of my life in the last year, and make some decisions uh, about the future. Now, uh, for those of you who are part of our Winter Festival, you know that our, the ceremony is based around the idea that we have kind of a, a winter self that we need to kind of choose uh, in the winter, because the summer self tends to freeze during this season, uh, that the winter self is the one who knows how to make warmth and comfort indoors uh, and switches to kind of an indoor culture, and also an inside culture, paying more attention to our own uh, insides, our own thoughts and feelings. It's a time, I think, this season, to remind ourselves that we're always standing at the cutting edge of our lives. At, at this moment, right now, this time, right this second, there's about five and a half billion of us standing abreast in the march of time. Behind us are just legions of people, events, that made up our own personal lives and also make up... Uh, our cultural history. But ahead of us lies our future. And that, of course, depends on the next step that we individually, personally make, and, of course, collectively what we make. Now, Nancy and I um, 
take this uh, very literally, it means that it's a time of year where we have uh, dates with ourselves uh, in which we discuss um, how our, our lives are going, how the last year is going, and begin to make some plans for our personal lives and our professional lives. And here at the Ethical Society, uh, any of you on committees knows that we're thinking about what's next year like. Uh, how's this year gone and what's next year? So for me, my whole life gets replanned right now. Now, I used to think that freedom was having no plans and schedules. Um, maximum spontaneity is what I wanted. Uh, so I just did the things that I had to do, and the rest of the time was left over for me and Nancy and my family. But of course, uh, in time, I accumulated a lot of things that I'd like to do and work on, and so the time that was just the ground of my being for being alone uh, became about that big. And so in reality, uh, by having spontaneity being uh, my uh, uh, way of approaching my personal time, it meant... Uh, that it was last in all my priorities. So this is a time where what we do is look at our joys and our complaints of the last year and literally restructure time, restructure a day and a week, and make sure that the first things that go into our year is our vacation times. And the first things that go into our week is our days off, our days for ourselves or our house or each other. Um, it means setting some uh, goals for how to uh, apportion uh, not only time but money and attention, and goals specifically in the areas of health, happiness, prosperity, success, and service. Now, you probably uh, have a sense that I'm kind of cozying up closer to something called the New Year's Resolutions. But I want you to know that I know that they are trite and passe. But I must confess that my purpose today here is to resurrect them from tritehood and uh, put some importance uh, into them. Now, for a long time, uh, I had given up uh, resolutions. Uh, my resolutions, I find, uh, were too resolute. I mean, they were too commanding. Um, they, my resolutions didn't resolve anything. Uh, they just didn't work. Then I figured out why. And the reason was that I was entrusting my New Year's resolutions uh, to my inner critic. Now, I don't know if you all have a critical voice in you uh, or not. I have um, several basic voices, if the truth be known, uh, that talk to me um, as I walk along my lifetime here. And one of them is this inner... Now, the inner critic is the one sometimes poses as a good guy, like he's making judgments and decisions. But if the truth be known, if you look at him for long enough, the inner critic is never satisfied. That's their goal, is never to be satisfied. So if I do real well, even exceed expectations, the response is likely to be, well, considering all the time you put into it, <laughs> oh, that's over, let's stop gloating at it and move on to the next thing you've got to accomplish. So its voice is always not satisfied. That's why it's the uh, inner critic. It kind of comes from that place that says, uh, if I've succeeded at this, uh, it can't be so much. <laughs> 
Now, the inner critic takes hold of these resolutions and uses them like a club uh, to nag me, you know, to uh, do it now, you shouldn't be doing that, you should be doing more of this, uh, you're going to forget about it. Um, it also puts me down. I mean, you're lazy, uh, uh, you should be doing it more, you should be doing it better, uh, you should have figured out how to do it a long time ago, everybody else knows how to do it, and it's discouraging. You know you can't do it. It's not for you. You'll never do it. Um, the inevitability of those resolutions not working out is so obvious in retrospect. I mean, to get away from the resolution was to take a club out of the hand of that inner critic. So there was a lot of reason to forget and not make. But there was also a second dynamic that went on. See, this inner critic became such the should driving, this is what I ought to be doing, this is what I ought to be doing. There was another part of me that wanted to be a little, when I wanted to be a little self-indulgent, I wanted to do something nice for myself. What I would do is, of course, assert myself against my own inner critic and say, ah, I'll do it anyway. So the net result was the resolutions didn't work. And even more basic than that, there was a sense of self-doubt around resolutions, a sense that, well, I can't really take charge of my life. There's no use really trying. Uh, I am basically addicted to my passions or my patterns, and uh, even though I know they're harmful to me, I know they're undesirable, but uh, it feels even worse getting depressed about the fact that I can't change them. So uh, I gladly gave up New Year's resolutions. Now, my new New Year's resolutions always work. So they are self-rewarding. Now, sometimes they take more than a year because after I get a year into them, I realize that I only understood the surface of it. There's a lot more that I could go and a lot more I could do. Um, but they always, I always have a sense. Uh, like, my gracious, I can't believe it's actually happened. The New Year's resolutions, I don't any longer give to that inner critic. Instead, I give it to um, inner witness. I know some of you in the courses know that phrase here. The inner witness is kind of, um, well, my inner witness ideal is like the voice of Jimmy Stewart. He's <laughs> um, never judgmental. I mean, it's just, oh, shucks, you know, that, oh, look at that. <laughs> you know, that's just the way it happened. Uh, the inner witness just wants to get how it is because the inner witness knows if you understand how it is, you function better and doesn't need to put the judgment on. You idiot, you should have known how it is. can be left out. The other voice in me that I give the resolution to um, is one that I actually call the choice muscle. It's kind of the create, creation machine that's in all of us. Um, certainly as naturally as our heart beats or our inner critic criticizes and judges, the mind is always uh, choosing and creating. To my inner witness and to this choice muscle, I give my New Year's resolutions. Now, let me just say something which I regard as the thesis of today. Some people daydream about all sorts of unpleasant things. And because thought is creative, they actually bring these miseries to themselves. 
I find that those who truly recognize the creative power of thought see to it that daydreams concern such happenings as they would really like to find in their life. Now, since uh, I've held this understanding, this thesis, my New Year's resolutions uh, have not only served me, but have done so rather effortlessly. Now, let's look at whether beliefs do create reality. I would say that the first thing that a person needs to learn, a culture needs to learn, is the opposite, is the distinction between fantasies and reality. You know, my kids are four and seven, and I see the very active work they have to do to sort out what their fantasies are and what's real. Certainly, some things are real, whether we believe in them or not. And I must admit that um, playing with that line of belief and fantasy is upsetting to me because as a child, I had to fight hard. Um, I, recently, I was at a wedding uh, in a Catholic church. I grew up Catholic, and um, I haven't been back there in, I don't know, 25 years, and I was at this church, and it was that 75-degree weather day that we had just before New Year's. And the priest took to the pulpit, and his opening remark of the Mass and the wedding was um, that this was a 75-degree sunny day, and that obviously we are normally freezing on this day, so God must be blessing this wedding. And I wanted to stand up, you know, like Dustin Hoffman at the end of The Graduate. And say, no, you know, I mean, what about what the sun is doing in Ethiopia? Is that a statement of God, too? So there are some beliefs in reality I find very upsetting when uh, they're not kept straight. If you believe that the moon is made of green cheese, then moon settlers are going to starve to death. If the truth has to be, the truth is hard, objective reality. And believing the truth is malleable, you live in a maze of delusion. One of the most important lessons of human history and of our individual development, I believe to be, is that reality must create our beliefs. Our beliefs must accurately reflect reality as it is. And that's a first lesson. But I want to talk about a second lesson that's useful when that one is clear. And that is that how we respond to an objective reality, how we respond to reality, to nature, how we respond to society, how we respond to people in our lives, to situations, how we respond to our own thoughts and feelings, in that there is a choice. And where there is choice, our reality is shaped by our beliefs. Without an idea of a chair, there can be no chair built by us. That we have to have some beliefs about health and happiness and prosperity before they're going to exist, before we can create them. Now, the choice muscle creates in the context of what it believes our world is like. 
Now, I had a dramatic experience about 14 years ago uh, that uh, made this notion of beliefs creating reality clear for me, and I began to apply it the rest of my life. It happened when Nancy and I were contemplating moving to Washington. We had decided to buy a piece of property uh, in the country in the Blue Ridge Mountains that was mostly a mountain, but much of the lower lands was grazing for cattle. And it was a June day, and we were there to sign the final papers. And we had brought with us a 16-year-old boy who was staying with us at the time. And while Nancy was speaking with the family, and they lived in a log cabin, and they were talking, and the boy and I went out for a walk. And we walked across this field. And it was one of those magic June days. I mean, everything was green, and there's rolling hills as far as you can see, and then the Blue Ridge Mountains and the blue sky above. And all around us, there were cows, you know, on the hills nearby and close. And I don't know if you've ever been in a, in a herd of cows while they're eating grass, but the sound of the munching, it's just wonderful, you know, stereo munch. <laughs> and we're walking along. And as we're walking in the midst of these cows, the one on a faraway hill just lets out this incredible moo, you know, it's just grand. And then one on the opposite hill, moo, you know. And um, the first one answered, and then another one started, and then right near us, one went, Mur! and boy, it was so loud, and it blasted us. And it was almost as if they were having a conversation, and as we walked, more and more cows got into this conversation. And I looked at this 16-year-old that I was with, and I could see fear in his eyes. Now, I had never been in a field of cows before myself, but, you know, I was the grown-up, and, you know, he was with me and whatever. So I decided to respond to that fear. And I said to him, you know what they're talking about? <laughs> he said, no. <laughs> and I said, they're deciding that they are all going to stampede right on us. <laughs> and he didn't know whether to laugh or not laugh. Just about the time I finished saying that, the first cows that had started began walking towards us. <laughs> and then whole groupings of cows began walking towards us. My pride <laughs> left, and we began walking fast. There was a moment, and I can't tell what came first, when all the cows who were near us stopped munching and looked up, and we began to run. Now, which came first, I am not sure. But as we ran, we could hear, boom, 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 you know. When we reached the fence, we did not climb the fence. We dove over the fence and landed on the other side. And as I looked back, this stampede came, and I knew they were going to run over the fence, and we were dead. It reached the fence, and it stopped. And all those heads went over the fence. And we're laying underneath this move. It was incredible. But soon as the safety of the fence was clear, it was wonderful. I mean, it was exciting. And we went back to that log cabin, and we told, I told that story just like I'm telling it now. But the people's response was strange. And the teenage girl kept giggling. And her mother said, Sue Ellen, Mind your manners. And Sue Ellen said, But mommy, they ran from cows! 
I have since learned that the self-image of a cow is about this big. I have seen my son at a year and a half with a little stick chase a herd of cows and they'd scatter like a flock of pigeons. I have also seen the farmer walk to the middle of that field, wait for the mooing to begin, walk along the fence and my belief <laughs> the choice muscle creates in context of what we believe to be true and therefore the choice muscle tends to create what it believes I don't know if you've ever seen this but the task that it says here is to connect those dots with four lines. And it can be puzzling because you can try all kinds of combinations to get the four dots. Uh, but um, if you try putting them in the middle, any which of those ways, you get five lines. And it uh, is perplexing. Until you recognize that the problem with it is that those dots suggest a rectangle. And that rectangle is the limit of the belief that prevents you from solving the problem. Because when you go outside the rectangle, it's quite easy. And that's one of the functions of our beliefs, that we become confined to our belief. And therefore, we create the dilemmas and the that we are believe are there. Also, um, we can find that sometimes life just seems or confusing, and we have to function in this random, confusing world and do the best we can. But the truth is that there are beliefs out there that can put together a pattern of randomness that gives us a much better handle on what it's about and how to function within it. The choice muscle works with the information that we provide it. And when we don't have a purpose, if we don't have a ch the choice muscle creates just more of what it's already created. It just, if it thinks random is out there, it keeps creating random. And when that happens, we interfere with the health of our growth. I think human beings, like all living things, are always growing. We're either getting healthier and happier or unhealthier and unhappier. Growth is not the exception in life. Growth is the rule. Growth, growth is the nature of life. Reality changes each moment like a moving stream. And when we plant helpful thoughts, they grow and they change us. We expect disappointment, we get disappointment. <clears throat> by putting purpose in our mind, the vision grows as naturally as we breathe because the brain is creating as the lungs do breathe. So, as I do every year at this time, I want to invite you to use this morning to choose your own special purpose in this new year. Now, some of you I know have done this in previous years, and during the response period, I'd love to hear about how it's worked out for you. 
During uh, the collection this morning, I'm going to pass out um, these cards suitable for mounting on the refrigerator mirror above the desk or by your bed. Um, and I'd like it at the end of the morning before you leave or after you get home uh, to write down for yourself your purpose for the year or two or three if you choose. Post it where you'll notice it or you might become aware of it. See if it remains a priority, if you're acting on the priority, how, how it's progressing. And of course, next year, so you can see, did it turn out or not? I'm going to be uh, silent for the next couple of minutes, and I'd like to ask you to pay attention to your, to your own thoughts, but specifically about your complaints about the next year. Imagine, if you will, the different aspects of your life and all the ways in which it's not working or you don't like the way it is working or something that you don't like about it. And uh, I spent a couple of minutes doing that. But uh, eventually, think about one of the complaints that you would really like to get rid of and choose your biggest uh, complaint, the thing that you'd like to uh, get rid of. Take a few minutes for complaints. You might wonder why I chose a complaint, but of course inside a complaint is a wish. When a complaint comes to mind, it means that in some way we are no longer willing to accept it as it is. So that when our biggest complaint is changed into a want or a wish or a purpose, it becomes part of a new creation. Take another minute and see if you have settled on one or two or one complaint that you'd like to make into a wish. You've heard it said, I think, that um, you are what you eat. Well, my thesis today is that you are what you believe. An idea is like a seed. A poppy seed will grow by the law of nature into a poppy, and an acorn into an oak. This law is dependable. Never do you plant corn seeds and get cabbages. Similarly, Negative beliefs produce negative results. Positive beliefs produce positive results. And because the human brain operates full-time, like the heart's beating full-time and the lungs are breathing full-time and the brain is creating, it's creating night and it's creating day, it works within our consciousness, but it also works uh, without our conscious attention. Einstein said that the source of my theories is my unconscious mind from which the ideas come glittering out of the darkness like shooting stars. The conscious mind is merely like our TV tuner. We tune it into channel 26, but meanwhile all the other stations are broadcasting. As we concentrate our mind on any thought, others <clears throat> are working. The unconscious mind collects data. It organizes information. Right now it's doing it. It follows beliefs and strategies that we took on and forgot long ago. Of course, the key cardinal contribution of Freud and all of the psychological movement of the century is how many of the decisions that we make in early childhood before the age of reason, before we're able to have concrete reasoning, and we make those assumptions, and we forget those assumptions, and it affects our adult decision-making, our adult beliefs. 
and of course modern psychology that has discovered that you can redecide on these subjects by assigning it new beliefs. When we have a purpose, our unconscious purposefulness utilizes what resources are around us and in us to work towards that new purpose. Now imagine what happens when we don't convert complaints to wants. We look for further complaints because we expect that as what the world is made of. We look for further complaints just like I looked for a cow stampede. As we are what we eat, our unconscious mind works with whatever beliefs we feed it. It may chew on a steady diet of fear, anxiety, self-doubt, suffering, limitation, scarcity, or health, happiness, aims for greater prosperity, success, love, service in our life. Now, the way these orders are placed is not a very mysterious. Uh, it is simply the inner dialogue that is always there for us to observe if we so choose to do it. I recently started swimming yesterday, and uh, I noticed that swimming leaves a lot of time for me to simply notice what my brain is thinking, or driving my car, or shaving, or eating. There is this dialogue that is usually just beneath the surface of awareness, but in idle moments may pop into awareness, and we can observe what it's saying. And mine often says, self-put-downy things, self-doubting things about how the day is not going to go well, or critical things about how other people are probably going to behave, minimizing what they might contribute and interpretations about how the world is going to be hard and scarce and difficult. And if that is what is being said to me just beneath the surface most of my day, certainly that's the seed that I'll see growing or that I'll constantly have to stamp out, fight against. But if just beneath the surface are voices which are confident which are noticing the successes and the best part of who I am and the people around me. Certainly that is the seed that will grow. Uh, you recall that my opening words referred to the kingdom of heaven as being within and influenced by our own choices. Uh, my closing words I want to read um, about human life, uh, read something about human life in the ideal form in the words of a 17th-century English poet named Thomas Traherne. Your enjoyment of the world is never right till every morning you awake in heaven, see yourself in paradise, look upon the sky, the earth, and the air as celestial joys, and regard all people with reverend esteem as if you lived among the angels.